and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we're discussing the biggest indie hit of the year to date, Call Me By Your Name. Rising star Timothy Chalamet stars as Elio, a budding classical musician whose summer is turned upside down by the arrival of Oliver, who is played by Army Hammer, and who is a graduate student working with Elio's father. The film is a lush Italian romance directed by Luca Guadagnino, who also made uh, the films I Am Love and A Bigger Splash. And I think it is safe to say that we both enjoyed this movie quite a bit. It is my favorite film of the year so far. I loved it so much. I can't wait to see it again. I was hoping to get a, to watch it a second time before we recorded this, but the stars did not align. Yeah, same. It, it was released earlier here in the UK. They released it in October. And um, I wish I'd gone to see it a second time because I kind of went to the film festival and I'm like, Gonna have to wait till it has that Oscar re-release in January. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just came out here in the US. So if you're listening to this in the United States, it probably hasn't gotten to your city yet. I think it's going wide in January and it'll be sort of trickling out to other cities besides New York and Los Angeles in between now and then. But we thought we'd talk about it now because it is the thing that is being talked about everywhere on the internet at the moment. Um, And it is, I said it was the biggest indie hit not in terms of total gross i think well lady bird will probably get there it's probably not there yet but that's making a ton of money but in terms of the opening weekend per box office average which is how they measure like how hot a movie is this has num- is number one of the year so i think it made like a hundred one hundred thousand yeah i mean it's very in each widely discussed it's also really interesting to talk about so hopefully we'll be able to explore that in this podcast even <laughs> um, but, if you, you know, haven't it's got seen famous it, yes. people who are very kind of popular in it and it costs 3.5 million dollars i think so uh well done everyone yeah and i just think this movie is so extraordinary i just keep thinking about it is the thing because yes. going into the film festival obviously my number one most anticipated film was the shape of water which we will be discussing in next week's episode and when i went to see call me by your name i was like it's very good um but obviously I'm not like as excited about it I was just sort of like this is a very hyped indie film that film people are into and I'm like just you know I'll forget about it but then as the weeks progressed after watching it I realized that I was just thinking about it (laughs) so much so it's actually very much a grower for me as someone who is not unmoved but like not crying hysterically like a lot of other people you know and now when I do watch it I think I am probably gonna have the crying experience um and it's just really you know it's thought-provoking in the sense that you know good art should be not in the sense that it's like we're going to introduce some themes and we can discuss it with the class it's just that every aspect of it is so kind of deep and well thought out and well illustrated without really kind of shoving you anything in your face yeah i think it is interesting when you see a movie and you like it the first time or even really like it and the second time is when it really gets you so like i just saw lady bird for the second time this past weekend with my mom and my grandma which is i think an experience a lot of women had this thanksgiving and i had seen it the first time at the festival and totally loved it and then i went the second time it was like crying at the end they brought (laughs) they brought the lights up the second the credits rolled and i was like this is an attack like please put the lights out again like i don't need this but the first time i saw this movie I was, I was dead. Like I was done. It was, it completely got me. And I think it took a little while. Like I was really into it from the beginning. Like even the opening credits, I was like, I'm going to love this movie. But I would say around maybe half an hour or 45 minutes in was when I, yeah, like I sort of went from being into it to being like, 
this is this is it. This is my favorite movie of the year. And then at the end, I was just like sobbing. It was just absolutely beautiful. And well, I think Luca Luca Guadagnino's movies are really slow burners. Yeah. He's not someone who introduces the primary characters in the first act and it's like, boom, you can you know where this is gonna head, yeah. you know? It's like I watched I Am Love the other day. I you know, it's a really brilliant film. It's it's about, you know, like a rich business owning Italian family and the main character is played by Tilda Swinton, who like famously learned Italian for the role and stuff, and it's all very classy and there's affairs and drama and what have you. And I spent most of the film being like, this is really interesting. There's really fantastic depictions of food. And obviously all of the actors are tremendous, but it like didn't really click for me until I got to the final scenes. And I was like, oh, okay, now you've like, now I know what this, first of all, now I know what the title means, which is like yeah. not, obviously not clear for most of the film. And then suddenly it all comes together and he has this really intelligent use of music that plays into it. We're going to talk about music a bit later, but like he is a massive John Adams fanboy and has now done four movies where he just takes John Adams' music and just makes it all the way through the soundtrack. Um, so I hope at some point John Adams, who is still with us, acknowledges his, his greatest <laughs> fan in Hollywood. <laughs> I haven't seen I Am Love, but I have seen A Bigger Splash, which was two years ago? No, it was even last, last year, year, actually. He made yeah. them in really fast succession. Yes. And like it's really interesting to watch all three of those films because I Am Love is it's quite obscure it has this character who's played by Tilda Swinton who's obviously a very expressive actress but you really can't see the motives of her character for a lot of the film um, and it's not really um, it's also not funny right whereas this film and A Bigger Splash are both hilarious yeah this one very much not in a kind of joke way but more in the sense that the two main characters are just so well observed and funny like Elio is you know, he's this very kind of intelligent teenage boy. You know, he's he's a music prodigy, but not like Mozart style. He's just like a really good pianist and likes to, you know, transcribe music in his spare time. And Oliver, the character played by Army Hammer, is this like overconfident American who's like encroaching on Elio's space in this beautiful family home he shares with his rich academic parents. And their interactions are just like very comedic because they're both dummies. Um, and they're just both like they're both such dorks they don't really know how to behave around each other the younger guy has the kind of lack of confidence that comes with being 17 but he also has like the weird cockiness of being a teenager and then you think that army hammer's character is really cocky but actually you realize he's insecure and it's just like oh you're both like dumb babies even though one yes. is like 24 yeah i think what really works about this film and i think what makes it i mean there are a lot of things that make it a masterpiece, all of which we will discuss. But I think what has part of what has made it such a huge phenomenon is that it's obviously a distinctly queer story. It's a love story between two men, and there's that is addressed in the movie in a particular way. But the sort of central point of the story is something that I think a lot of people can either identify with directly or it's just something that's very familiar to them, which is that it's young people in the summer who meet each other, fall in love, and then inevitably, and this is really not a spoiler, like, it's not gonna last forever, right? Like, this has to end, and you know it's going to end. And the first, like, four-fifths of the movie, even, are just so pure and joyous, and it's really funny, and it's not that there's no pathos, but I can't think of many really heavy movies. stuff doesn't happen. Right. Like it's, it's just so pleasurable to watch. 
And then you get to the end and it's like you've been punched in the stomach. And again, like, I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but not really, because even as you're watching the first part and you're feeling this joy, you know what's coming. And I think irrespective of the queerness of the movie, which I'm not trying to diminish that because it's definitely there, that in and of itself, that feeling is not a queer thing. That's just Mm -hmm. a thing that people feel. And um, I think that that, sorry, you were going to say. Oh, no, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I just think it's really impressive that this film basically has the world's most stereotypical premise, which is part of the reason why I was just like not hyped about it. Because yeah. first of all, there are a million billion European art films about, you know, coming of age stories where young people have an affair, especially young people having an affair in, you know, like an Italian villa in the sun right. or something. And like also the kind of prime subgenre of queer cinema is to thin white men fall in love (laughs) possibly over a coming of age backdrop where one of them is like coming out and the other one's slightly older and I was just like this is not this is like not doing it for me as a premise and I was kind of sitting there like feeling a bit smug while everyone was like dying over it all over film twitter (laughs) and I watched it I was like okay right you've completely overcome every aspect of that being a cliche and it's actually incredible (laughs) well right they use the cliche to their advantage as opposed to succumbing to it which is really hard to do yeah. and part of why it works so well like I think I remember we talked about Casablanca like a million years ago we talked about how that movie is just a million cliches and that's actually what makes it so great and this movie is not anything like Casablanca but I think there is something similar in the way that it's playing on that stuff and leaning into it at certain points and then transcending it at others yeah and, and also I, the romance is very much character focused which yeah I know this sounds weird to say but like probably the majority of romance films I've seen like admittedly most of them are more in the kind of mainstream rom-com sense they're more about tropes and characters but a lot of romance movies don't really think about why the individual characters love each other beyond kind of the mood of attraction and romance which is fine because like a lot of the experience of that is just having the mood of attraction and romance but with this there is kind of so much thought in the way the characters fit together yeah um they both completely feel like real people and i said someone was asking me on um tumblr about the possibility of sequels which is some there this has been sort of a discussion um which we can talk about later because i think it would sort of make more sense once we've talked about the whole movie but i was talking about my feelings about it but i said that normally when a when I finish a book or a movie or, you know, any kind of artistic medium, I don't think about the characters ever again in the sense that I may think about the movie or book again, but where they go after that, I don't think about, which is funny because obviously I like have written and read a lot of fan fiction, but usually only for particular media properties. Like the art is the art and that's kind of it. And with this, like I thought it was perfect. And yet, I was still thinking like, well, what happens to them like 10 years later? Like what's going to be going on? And I think that's a testament to how unbelievably well-realized they were because they really did feel like people. And it's sort of the beginning of both of their lives in a way, particularly Ilya, the younger ones. And that makes the whole thing so much more compelling. Like you do get a sense that this is an episode in their lives that is going to be really important, but it's not the totality of everything. Um, and I think that, you know, people have sort of been talking about 
this, I think, mostly in a productive or praiseworthy way. But it's not a particularly explicitly political film, right? Like, there aren't, like, big dramas about sexuality or whatever. Like, that does come into play, but it's mostly just about these people hanging out in the villa. (laughs) Like, the romance going on. And then this feeling of it being kind of doomed, and I think that that actually is what's really political about it, is that it can allow the story to just be about these really individual people without going through all of the more explicit, like, political, in quotes, drama in, like, a textual way. And it would be really interesting to see... Because the way that it's been discussed with the director, like the actors are obviously very much up for the, this because it's the best thing either of them ever made. But um, they've kind of talked about making multiple sequels. And although I've not read the book, I know that the book at the end gives an epilogue that is, doesn't happen in the film. I really wonder what the style of a future film would be like because after watching this, I kept thinking about, like Morgan said, it's this really evocative kind of sense of coming of age teen nostalgia. But like the nostalgia stuff is baked into every part of the film and one of the things I kept thinking about is the way uh, Luca Guadagnino frames the story around the things that one remembers like when you're looking back at the summer you remember certain things so it's like really emotional high points really embarrassing moments and obviously the romance and particular snapshots but also like the overarching feeling of like the sunshine and meals that you enjoy and stuff and you can imagine that maybe even some of it's been like misremembered from other other summers he spent there with his family you know and there is this kind of summer rhythm to it where army hammer's character is just the latest of several uh grad students who have come to visit the villa with elio's father you know if you were making a later film you know like 10 years later would it have to be stylistically completely different because it wouldn't be using the rhythm of summer nostalgia is what I'm I'm very curious to know and why I'd be quite interested to see the sequel (laughs) well I think it could be visually very much of a piece I think it would be tonally quite different I mean the three films by this director I've seen have all very much been like have a look at this amazing Mediterranean sun (laughs) yes (laughs) kind of a defining characteristic for me (laughs) Yes, I do, however, think, and I saw a bigger splash, you know, a year ago, which isn't that long, but isn't like last week either. I think, and I haven't seen I Am Love, which I've been meaning to do literally since it came out and will achieve before the Oscars this year. (laughs) This is my goal. Um, But I've seen images from it and I have a general sense of what was going on visually. I think this is, of those three films, definitely the least flashy visually. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one's a lot more chill. Yeah, and so it's obviously it's taking place in the same general environment. A bigger splash also takes place like in an Italian villa where people are on vacation, and they're all about rich people, but like yes. not in a shit way. Because God knows I get annoyed when you watch a film and it's like, well, let's have a look at this film about like either neurotic rich people or the American version for mainstream films, which is look at these rich people that we're pretending aren't rich. Which yes, really that's always the best. A chalkboard, um, but in this, it's like they are very privileged while not being super rich and they can like afford to have this villa but it's not it doesn't kind of feel toxic it just feels sort of like mid-20th century like suspended happiness well it's (laughs) yeah it's and i sort of was like i remember having this vague thought watching the movie that kind of drifted away and then thought it more concretely after and i think it drifted away because i was just loving it so much i was like wow it is a miracle this is a film about 
he's like rich and i think elio has like three nationalities and like intelligentsia living in a villa in italy that's like their summer home i don't remember yeah, where it's he's like, supposed it's to like live the in summer the summer home of like a family of academics who can just like yeah. afford to have a maid to cook them stuff all the time and it's like i don't hate you right <laughs> and it's so fine weird. like <laughs> you're just like well whatever and that's again the like that film just has this weird magic to it where it just engenders this incredible sense of goodwill into you but i think that that also gets back to how unbelievably specific it is and of course there have been many 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 depictions of rich people that are very specific that are not (laughs) positive but it does such a good job of just getting you into this place that feels really real and so instead of you or at least this has been my was my experience, and I think based on most of the reactions I've seen on Twitter and from talking to people, I think this is the certainly majority experience. Instead of being like, fuck these rich people, they're Italian villa, you feel like you're there. And so it's just two hours being like, oh, this is great. <laughs> like, if, yeah. you know, this would be great all the time, but oh well, like, I can just be here for two hours, and that's fun. Whereas, like, with a bigger splash, he's very conscious that these people are just shit because yes. that one's the one where Tilda Swinton plays uh, a rock star and then she's got this kind of entourage of people and then they've got like Ray Fiennes playing this unbearably obnoxious music producer and it's like you're all terrible he's so good at it. <laughs> but yeah it's much more of a kind of social commentary although that's not quite the right phrase to yeah, describe yeah. the movie but but it's part of what it's doing and this is just interested in something else in a way that's fine. And I think that that's because it is a romance. And so his primary objective is to create the feeling in you of this kind of petty summer romance as though you are there experiencing it. And not that that can't exist also with the class stuff, but that's not the, the main thing. It is also interesting that they're both Jewish, which is something that's kind of subtly in the film, but not the main point but the fact that they're not just rich wasps or yeah whatever wasp minus american because he's oliver's american but the the others aren't adds a kind of interesting layer to it that isn't the sort of main thing i was thinking about but i'm sure there will be good writing about it oh it's just such a slick sensual experience and the music too which i guess we can talk about now adds to that in a big way i have the people, soundtrack people, and are, just been people like, are just dying over the music of this movie oh. and i would like to say for the listeners who have not watched call me by your name yet don't listen to the music no don't listen to the music this is a hell i will die on for literally any film but especially this one which yes. is that you should not listen to the soundtrack of a film before you watch the film and in this one particularly because all of the music is very carefully selected and to have emotional cues that you have to experience in real time and then afterwards you may listen to the music <laughs> Thank you. This is the end of that public service announcement. <laughs> Gav has informed you what to do. Now listen to her. No, I totally agree. I mean, even just the the opening song over the credits is so sets the mood for what the movie is going to be. And I never heard it before. It was just like, this is great. So is that, like, does it start with Suffy and Stevens or does it start with no, the Hallelujah Junction? No, it starts with the Hallelujah Junction. Because that, that piece of music is literally the most perfect <laughs> the most perfect choice it's like oh my god so i mentioned john adams before for listeners who are like not super in 
to orchestral music. He's he's kind of a late 20th century American composer. He's still around and he does a lot of minimalist music with like pianos and classical music instruments. And this piece is kind of, it's a duet for two pianos and it's about them kind of interlocking with each other. They're, they're like sometimes at different speeds and sometimes at the same speed. And it's like a wonderful relationship song for the two main characters. As well as also being like, you know, there's lots of beautiful piano music in this because one of the main characters is a pianist. This is just like, after I watched the film, I was like, oh my God, so what a smart choice. Um, and then obviously I kind of looked up Luca Guadagnino and realized that he's completely fucking obsessed with John Adams. So obviously he would select the best possible choice of music yes. for this film. <laughs> yeah, all the music was so smart. I don't know anything about classical music at all, but it, like just listening to it as you're watching the film it has a huge impact on your experience. And it's sort of that combined with like obscure pop hits of the eighties, which is great. <laughs> and then three Sufjan Stevens songs, two of which were composed for the film. And I think he said, it was maybe in the press conference that I went to, but I'm sure he's mentioned it in uh, other interviews. That, like the Sufjan stuff is supposed to be kind of basically what the book is doing. So like the future reflections on what's happening in the film so it's obviously stylistically very different from any of the other music and you can tell that it's different when you're watching it like it is a tiny bit jarring but in a way that i felt completely fit but also like the 80s music not all of it is like whatever it is you know the diegetic or anti-diegetic or whatever it is um the thing where like there's film there's music yeah. that's in the film and out of the film but like the the one where there's the one piece of 80s music that everyone's going to recognize is there's a song by the psychedelic furs which if you use twitter and are into film you've probably already seen the clip of army hammer dancing and they've now recut it to many other songs but that's kind of in the film and the other 80s pop music is like much more obscure and it's just kind of like part of the background yes and the fact that it's obscure and some of it is italian music it just makes sense that would be what's playing on the radio right. like having summer volleyball games with your friends you know yes. in 1983 yeah really works because it does make it feel more authentic and is not distracting you from yeah it being all the things you recognize and i think i i thought it was really effective um, and it's really good soundtrack. So once you do see it, you should definitely buy the soundtrack because I've really been enjoying listening to it. But that gets us to another thing I want to talk about, which was generally the period stuff. It takes place in... I don't think they specify the year. It's 1983. Like mid- oh, okay. Um, I had that in my head and I was like, I'm making that up. I don't think- anyway, yes, 1983. And this is one of the best period films I have seen in such a long time. Because they don't get painstakingly specific. Yes. It is so chill. There are some things that you, like, people wear and you think, wow, nobody would ever wear that now. But it's not, like, excessively over the top. And at the press conference, he was talking about it. And he said, like, we got, like, went to what, you know, the town. I think it's where he lives. I think that is his villa, which is disgusting. Um, And they got, like, photos from, like, old photos from all these different families to see what the like women were wearing or whatever. And the sort of big poofy 80s hair, nobody was doing that. Because it's like, fucking Italy. Right. In like Northern Italy, <laughs> like all the sort of stereotypical like ideas of what people were dressing like in the 80s, like nobody would want. No. But it's also like, it's um, really sunny. Why am I right. going to like whiff my hair? It's, you're going to wear like a light sundress 
in yes. a style that will change somewhat over the course of a hundred years. <laughs> yes. And so you can tell that it's not now, like they the guys wear these really big shirts that are not currently in vogue and like quite small shorts, which is very funny. And obviously there's the music and then other cultural things, whatever. And the cars are great too, I should say. But it's so not belabored in a way that then like it does feel like it's kind of this other time and place, which adds to the nostalgia factor that you were talking about, particularly if you're watching this as like not in a time person. Like it just it feels very seductive. But you're not thinking the whole time, like, oh, that's the eighties. <laughs> like, I see. Which was also really refreshing. But at the same time, Army Hammer looks wonderfully American. Yes. Because he's wearing I mean, he's wearing wasp clothes, you know? He's wearing, oh, yeah. like, you know, blue shirts and khakis and that kind of thing. I mean, he's probably wearing boat shoes at some point, and he's got, like, the I'm army sure. hammer floppy blonde hair. It's all very Ralph Lauren without being aggressively Ralph Lauren. I think they based his look off Bruce Weber photography. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, what's I mean, up? It's, 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 what, it's what kind of fashion people describe as timeless basics, which means that it's something that with very small tweaks can make you look like a slightly rich but not ostentatiously rich person anytime between 1950 and now is what <laughs> the timeless basics mean <laughs> yes except in his case his shorts are much smaller than than are yes. normal i read on vulture today that they had to do some creative uh cutting of the film to preserve his modesty because oh his God. shorts were so short <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my, okay. So that must have been really comfortable for you. Just beautiful little tidbits that you okay. learn if you spend the, all your time I on the internet. I just remembered, I completely forgot, but the scene with Elio and the shorts was so excruciating. I was actually sitting there like, I don't think I could watch this. <laughs> I was so, I was like, I was sitting there like on tenterhooks like, oh God, no. <laughs> I was simultaneously feeling that and just absolute hysteria. I was like, this is amazing, but also I'm sorry for people who haven't seen this. There's a very uncomfortable scene. Like, get out, get out now. <laughs> I went to see this. I was by myself, surrounded by a million film festival delegates. And I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely an element of that. Also, they're absolutely so funny. The The peach scene, we will say no more about it. There is a scene with the peach that has been much discussed. Yeah, and I'm very glad I, in fact, that I did not know about the, I'd never even heard the phrase peach scene before yes. I went in. So, it opens with a shot of a peach. Again, we will not spoil what occurs. But, literally, the entire audience at this, you know, press screening at the New York Film Festival, there starts to be, like, shifting in the seats and people start, like, tittering to each other. Like, I didn't know exactly what was coming, but I had sort of heard something. And, but everybody was, like, ready. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is not what seeing a movie with normal people is like. Like, people don't, aren't, like, aware, but uh, it was pretty entertaining. There are some indelible moments in this film, basically, of which the uh, sequence that follows is certainly one. And I, wish I was, I was just like, this is fine. I mean, it's great. <laughs> I think it's amazing, but it's, it's out there, I would say. 
there was some delighted laughter. I guess I have. I guess I have a laughter. weird gauge for what's shocking because the shorts thing. I was like, I was like close to just breathing my last breath and dying. I was just like, <laughs> I can't handle this it's too much. The peach thing. I was like, sure. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, oh we will God. stop. We will stop discussing this. Hopefully, we've not spoiled any future viewers. <laughs> yes. Should we talk about the actors now? We may. It's so good. Everyone. Army Hammer so is very tall. He is very tall. It's he looks true. very tall in this film. He's six four. He's six five, my friend. Okay. Yeah. He's the tallest he's, of the men. He, he is very and in tall. This, he's very lanky. Yeah. Timothy Chalamet is also quite tall. Because it's impossible to tell. He looks like a tiny pixie by comparison. Well, he was standing next to him at the photo call at the festival. I did not see this, but I saw the pictures. And we, I remember being like, oh, he's actually tall because he's like not that much shorter. But in the film, you don't get this sense because he's a, a tiny baby. But I just thought the two of them... And then also Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays Ilio's father, the academic who is... Oh my god, it was, I literally saw a double bill of this and The Shape of Water, and I was oh like, my god. who the fuck is this guy who's brilliant in both of these films, and I do not have any memory of who he is. <laughs> okay, so this is really, I'm gonna tell a hilarious story about a friend of ours who will not be named, because I don't <laughs> want to embarrass her, but she texted me and was like, the entire time I was watching The Shape of Water, I thought that... Ilio's dad was Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> and I was that's like... That's fair, that's fair. I was like, no. He, and is, I, he is like a non-hunky Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Which I can kind of see. I guess they could be related, sort of. But I, this was just absolutely hilarious to me because if you are a, like American indie cinema viewer who like goes to see a lot of stuff, you know who this guy is. Michael Stuhlbarg. The average American absolutely, like, 100% would not. He's not a famous Yeah, I looked him up and I was like, I'd seen him in something, but, like, he just was in a million dramas that I would, like, never in a million years watch. Yeah, but he, I think he's in a lot of theater in New York, actually, although I've never seen him in anything, but he had, um, he was the lead in a Coen Brothers movie many years ago called A Serious Man, which I would highly, highly, highly recommend. Oh my god, that was him. Okay. Yes, and he was amazing in that movie so 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 good and that was his big breakout thing and he hasn't had any leading role since i don't think he's he's a character actor as they say but i have always thought he was incredible since then and he was in steve jobs and he's been in a bunch of stuff and um tremendous dad performance in this oh my god oh my god he has a monologue at the end of this movie and like people had been talking about this before i saw it i think i mean this was at sundance a thing yeah, so this has been out for, not out, like, in the public sort of mind for a long time. And people have been talking about this monologue since fucking January. And so I was like, okay, I guess this is going to happen at the end. And I was had almost, like, prepared myself too much for it. And then it started, and I was like, okay, like, he's talking. And by the end, I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and apparently it's emotional. just directly, it's directly taken from one of the writers, just real dads. I, I'm not sure if it was the novelist, like it's based on a novel that's relatively recent. I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but the kind of primary screenwriter is a guy named James Ivory, who is 89 and is an icon of kind of, of British uh, British cinema. He, Merchant Ivory, you may have heard the phrase, they did a lot of kind of historical adaptations 
Um, so things like A Room with a View. Yes, they did a lot of the Forster adaptations and then various other things. So A Room with a View and Howard's End were the two biggest yeah. ones. But they were partners. Um, Merchant, I think, passed away. And now Ivory, yes. this is like, I mean, he's got to get a screenwriter nomination for this, if not winning. Like, come on. I think... Come come on. <laughs> I think he's definitely going to win. Good. I mean, this is, like, preliminary, <laughs> obviously, but the weirdly adapted screenplay this year is very thin, which is usually the reverse. Um, mm, yeah. I mean, obviously, there are many great original screenplays every year, but for Oscar purposes, it's usually a weirder field. And this year, for just by chance, that's it, the opposite is true. Like, adapted screenplay is bizarrely thin. And so I would be shocked if this didn't win, both because it deserves to and because he is such an icon. I suspect... Based on the sort of, so the background of this is quite interesting. He was supposed to direct this movie and they had a trouble getting financing for it over the course of many, many years. It was this long sort of production. Yeah, like Luca Guadagnino was going to like produce it or something. Yeah, they kind of brought him on because he knew the area and he could be a consultant. And then it went on for so long that he took it over. I think partially because they just felt like that would be the right thing. And also because James Ivory is 89 years old and at a certain point, it's just not really viable anymore. Um, but I think that he kind of co-wrote the script. It's, that's what my impression was. That yeah. writer's guild rules are very weird. Um, but James Ivory certainly did the, like, base work for the adaptation, and I'm sure a lot of the dialogue. Um, I don't know about that particular monologue, though. Um... Well, the monologue, I'm trying to remember because, um, there was, like, a brief Q&A after the screening I went to. And they were discussing how the monologue was taken from someone's life. And yeah. I think it may have been the novelist. And they were all yeah. just like, you know, you would never know that any father could be like so perfect as yeah. giving someone this like amazing emotive speech. Unbelievable. It's just such it's a such a like beautiful and empathetic moment. And it's I also can't... wonderfully integrated with the character we've seen so far because kind of he is very much like a funny dad in this movie not like a comedy dad but he has like a certain daddishness that i think we will all recognize you know part of that is that he's a slightly embarrassing academic so he has these kind of little rituals he goes through with his grad students and you know they're studying of course ancient greek statuary because you've got to like plug in those fucking cliches somewhere so there's all these like hunky statues or ancient roman statues should rather yes um, comes the same thing essentially but uh, he is very intellectual, but for most of the film, it's in a kind of slightly buffoonish way. Yeah. But then once you get to the end, you're like, well, obviously the fact that he is an art historian and is really analytical also plays into the way that he's interacting with his kids and his relationships. And he has like this very kind of thoughtful and poetic view of life that you're not going to see otherwise. And it's just, yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I, it was just really like just transcendent moment. And just, like, um, really great parents. Like, not, like, oh, they're the yeah. best parents, but, like, really well-depicted parents. And, like, in this kind of film, there's so many kind of cliches to do with teen rebellion and coming out that you can fall into, and this film just does none of them, and it's it's just so mm-hmm. kind of relaxing once you realise it's not going to. Well, yeah, and that's part of what I think makes it so sort of quietly political, right? Is that, like, he does not want to talk to his parents about this stuff, which is very understandable, and you can tell that on some level he is some part of him is very comfortable with this new thing that he's doing and some part of him isn't but like he doesn't want to like go have a chat with his dad about this <laughs> no, 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 
course. But then when it does happen, it's this beautiful moment as opposed to the dad being like, oh, like, I don't like that. Right. Like his parents are both clearly know exactly what is going on. And instead of trying to shut it down, just decided to be like, well, that's fine. This, they seem happy, so the, yeah, they can just keep at it for a while, which is like not how most parents would react, but is clearly the right thing to do in this situation. It's just really adds to the specificity of the film and to the sadness of the end, because it's not a normal sadness that you're encountering of like, you know, forces dividing. I mean, there are forces dividing them, but it's just like life. It's not. I, like, I saw this you know, just amazing quote from the director where he was kind of talking about how the film cost like nothing you know they, they filmed on yeah. 5 million and he was saying you know they could have had more funding but the person who was doing the funding had some you know script notes which is normal but the script note they had was this they wanted the mother to be a bitch <laughs> so, like, they just oh wanted, just, like, like, he was just like yeah they wanted the mother to be like the villain so I was just like that's really misogynist <laughs> and left <laughs> Bravo, it's also bravo. like have you ever seen any of his other films as well come on it's like yes he will have unpleasant women in them but it's not in a misogynist way like just no. for god's sake Jesus just, and also I just can't imagine what the I mean the motive for that I guess is like oh I guess it's easier for American audiences to understand if we have a villain in place it's like it's literally not you don't need to have one it's not a fucking Batman movie <laughs> you don't need to overcome something you're just experiencing emotions <laughs> Well, also, there is so much conflict in the film. It's not, it's just that there's not a bad guy. Yeah. Like, it takes so long for them to finally fucking make out. Like, I was sitting in the theater and was just like, come on, like, <laughs> get on with it already. But in the best way, like, it's so satisfying because it drags it out. And then once they finally have, the clock is ticking and you know that it's, Dooms. Like, there's all of this stuff that's kind of impeding their relationship. It's just not someone standing over them, like, waving a finger, saying, no, no, no. Which is so much more boring than what the movie actually is doing. But it's so predictable that people would not understand that, because people who have money to make movies are dumb. So, Timothy Chalamet also should say, in two of the best movies of the year, this and Lady Bird, and he is just... I, oh my word. He's brilliant. He is He is just perfect. I think, at least for me, him in this movie, that's my favorite performance of the year, like period, in any category. I think he's absolutely just astonishing. The last shot of this movie is the thing that has stayed with me more than anything else in any in movies this year, period. Like I've thought about it basically constantly <laughs> since seeing this film. If you go see this movie, don't leave until the credits are over because there were people doing that in my screening. <gasps> Fucking idiots. Yeah. Very scandalous. Journalists. Journalists were doing this. Maybe what they had another film to get to. No, they did not because there aren't that many films at the New York Film Festival and the next film was like two hours later in the same theater. So bad. Bad behavior. It was interesting. So I read like half the book and then I got distracted by something else and I am going to finish it. But it was interesting to read it having seen the movie and I bet I would have liked it more if I'd read it first. And I could recognize that like, it was a good book, but I actually found it radically different from the movie in a way that was interesting. We were talking about how just like joyous the movie is and like fun to watch. And the book has a real edge to it that I don't think the movie has particularly. And 
the it's in the first person it's sort of written from the future looking back at this summer by the Timothy Chalamet character Ilio and it's he's just has all of these like very kind of like dark teenage emotions which totally makes sense because teenagers are like that but it was impossible for me to sort of read reading the book to imagine the kid in the movie having any of these thoughts yeah because when and, he's feeling stuff that's bad I mean obviously like you really strongly empathize with him when he's sad but sometimes he'll do something kind of angsty and teenagery and it's just funny right because it's a funny yeah. film well and what's so appealing about that character is that at certain times he is clearly really angsty or feeling something sad and some of the moments of pathos are really upsetting as witnessed by me like weeping at the end of this movie and I don't normally cry in films so this was big um but he, there is a fundamental lightness and brightness to him that is also what teenagers are like that I found so like attractive in a literal sense like you're so drawn to him on the screen like he's just completely magnetic and then he's really that, casual and energetic yes he has a like the way he moves his body in the film is so like I am a young person and I will take up all the space and I have complete confidence in my body, but it's, but it's actually like, it's too much because he actually doesn't have complete confidence in himself because he's 17. And so it's sort of like, I will do it. Like, I'm going to just sprawl everywhere. And like, it is this, like, it's just so much energy because he's pretending to be an adult because that's how you learn to be an adult is to pretend. Um, and then when you do have the moments of pathos, they're even more effective, I think, because most of the time he's just kind of screwing around and being funny and I was just amazed by him and then in Lady Bird he plays this like total just like shit angsty teen who's like the bad boyfriend who Saoirse Ronan has for a while I look forward to seeing Lady oh my Bird God. in a million years when it reaches the UK yeah so just to give like a little thumbnail sketch she like wears black all the time she first sees him playing in a band and then first meets him reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States in a cafe and he says things like I don't really like money and talks about how cell phones are going to be used to track everyone and this takes place in 2002 so he's really ahead of the curve just sublime just like absolutely incredible and he's so good in that too doing the kind of like dark version of the like sensitive teenage boy type and it's just really exciting to see a young actor or actress or whatever um, actor in this case burst into the scene like that and be like, oh, right, you're gonna, I'm going to be watching you for the next, like, however long I'm alive. <laughs> it's just so good. And we'll hopefully be getting stuff for forever. Um, and he escaped playing yeah. Spider-Man. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Oh, I no, do... no, I just made that up. But I don't think he was up for it. It's just that he is a Spider-Man boy. Oh, but I bet he was, though. I'm sure they tested him. Because he's been around. He was, he was, uh, I saw him on Homeland many years ago, which I actually did remember, which is a testament to him because I didn't, don't remember thinking he was amazing on Homeland. He was not like a big role, but I remembered who he was. So some element of that performance must have stuck with me. Um, but he's like, he's, he was LaGuardia High School Performing Arts, which is like a big deal in New York. Um, and is obviously sickeningly talented. So I, I would not be shocked if actually he had indeed escaped that. <laughs> and hopefully he will continue to escape 
big superhero movies and just keep doing stuff. I mean, like he's this. too skinny. Yeah, because there's really he's... only two roles you can be when you're that skinny, and that's the Flash and Spider Man. They've already co- got it covered, so he's safe. He's yeah, extraordinarily skinny. Yeah, he's a very tiny man. Just oh, love him. Lovely, lovely boy. And I hear that he is in fact very nice. So that's good. Continue, please. Don't let Hollywood ruin you. Do we have anything else we want to add besides go see this when you can? It's so wonderful. Yeah, no, I think we're good. Yeah, that's it. And go see Ladybird in the meantime, which I think is out everywhere. And we'll give you a little teaser experience for for what is about to come in January. As we said before, next week we will be talking about The Shape of Water, which we have both seen and is excellent. Is that out? It's not out. It's it's out on the 8th of December across the US. It's on the 1st of December in New York. Okay. And then in the UK, it's out in fucking February, which is killing me. I need yeah. to see it again. This is my <laughs> film. My special fish fucking film. <laughs> so, two weeks you'll be able to see it. Unless you live in New York. Los Angeles, in which case you can see it next week. But we will be here for you with an advanced discussion next week. Unless you live in the UK, which you're screwed, I guess. But it's very good. Look forward to it. Gav has lots of thoughts about this movie, as you would expect. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode, even though you probably haven't seen this film yet. I hope you enjoy it when you do see it, and please let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.